The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome to the Rebel Podcast. And you can likely hear that I am not Pastor Pooty, nor am I Pastor Nate. Rather, I am Wetsy with the knobs and dials, also known as Dave, and occasionally just AU. So you may ask, where are the famous rebels today? Well, they are on their way to the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference at the Ark Encounter. But not wanting to leave our loyal listeners at a loss for good listening, we decided to reach way back into the dark recesses of the Rebel Podcast folder on my hard drive and bring back a classic episode from November of 2017. That's almost six years ago. The special guest was someone that Nate and Chris had not personally met at that time, but had caught their attention because of a book he had written. Who was that, you ask? It was none other than Dr. Joe Boot. One thing I found when I listen to old recordings that there's always one or two wow moments when I think about what has transpired since the recording was made. I think there may be some of those moments in this episode. It's a little longer than usual, but well worth your time. So let's go back now to November 2017, episode number 41 with Dr. Joe Boot. We have a great interview uh, that we recorded uh, with uh, an awesome guest named uh, Dr. Joe Boot. Dr. Joe Boot is the pastor at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Uh, he's also the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Um, and, and actually, that, that actually segues into this interview quite well, because he's essentially going to talk to us about um, that, that Christian faith is meant it, it, at its very core in, in the New Testament. The Christian faith is supposed to be lived in the public space. And so we're going to talk to Joe Boot, and uh, we really hope you enjoy this interview. Anything you want to say about it before we uh, let them let, let them in on this? No, no. I'm, I've, we've, we've known about this one for a little while. We were both super excited to have this man on, on the uh, podcast because I think we've both been blessed by... The Ezra Institute's podcasts and and some of his books. I'm in, I'm halfway through the Mission of God by him, and it's blowing my mind. Yeah, I can't seriously. wait to finish it so we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, but there's he you know he's authored numerous books. He's one of those guys who you can't you can't help but get something out of what he says every single time. The yeah. word doesn't never seems to go void when he when he speaks. Right. Yeah, so. He's uh, he's definitely underrated. He's brilliant. And if you're jumping into this uh, interview, which I'm going to shut up and let you listen to in just a <laughs> moment. Um, yeah, stick with it. He gets really technical at the beginning and then he gets so, so practical. So if he's speaking over your head, don't worry. He was speaking over our heads for the first little bit, um, but he brings it all back down and he'll explain it to you. He'll land this ship and you'll be so blessed by this. So here's Dr. Joe Boot. 
Well, we are here with Dr. Joe Boot, and uh, Dr. Joe Boot is the pastor at Westminster Chapel in Toronto, uh, a fellow Canadian, which is great. Even though uh, you were born overseas, uh, you are now one of us, and uh, also the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. So thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Boot. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Before we kind of launch into the conversation we want to have today, uh, Chris and I just wanted to say how thankful we are for your ministry. I I think Ezra Institute is doing a lot of wonderful things. It's wonderful uh, for us. I mean, a lot of the theologians and and pastors and authors that we follow are uh, either from the UK or from America. So it's nice to kind of have a Canadian voice. And your book, Mission of God, I often cite as one of the top five books in terms of just been influential in my own ministry. So Thanks so much for all the work you're doing. And uh, and if anybody is listening right now and you don't know Dr. Boot and you want a good intro, pick up The Mission of God. And it's uh, it's phenomenal. So thanks for everything, Dr. Joe. I'm very encouraged to hear uh, what you've got to say about that and it, why it's our, it's a privilege for us, the EACC, to serve. We're, we're about trying to provide those kind of resources to thinking believers and people in ministry such as yourself. So it's an encouragement for us to hear that kind of feedback that it's being a blessing and a help in people's lives and ministries on the ground. It definitely is. So what we wanted to talk about today uh, specifically was uh, two kingdom theology. Uh, at Rebel Alliance Media, our mandate is to equip Christians to engage the culture with a biblical worldview. And uh, like yourself, and you've been one of the influences who has helped us understand this, that the Lordship of Christ ought to infiltrate every sphere of our lives. And so we just kind of wanted to start with talking uh, about two kingdom theology. Just for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with that language, um, do you want to define two kingdom theology for us and kind of talk about um, why it's uh, important and and how it's kind of reared its ugly head again? I wish that were a simple task to define two kingdoms theology. In fact, part of the problem in defining this idea in contemporary terms is that there are so many different variants of uh, two kingdoms theology that um, you can be in a situation where you're discussing one version and then you realize that the person you're talking to holds a slightly different variant. In fact, I had that experience some months back when I was uh, debating uh, Dr. Matthew Tuninger from the States and uh, he'd said all these very positive things about David Van Drunen and uh, his uh, referred to him as having uh, holding to the gold standard of two kingdoms theology. So I went into that discussion and debate to answer essentially the vision as it's been popularly set forth by David Van Drunen and Matthew Tuninger basically defended something <laughs> completely <laughs> different or at least a very distinctive variant. So part of the challenge is definition. So I think maybe I could start here by just saying that Since the time of William of Ockham, probably, and then Martin Luther, and then with the Reformers, this sort of language about two kingdoms has been used. I mean, some would even point to Augustine and say that, you know, the city of God and um, the city of man or the earthly city and the heavenly city was a sort of first setting forth of a sort of two kingdoms concept. And I think, to be clear... I do recognize that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. That's right. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. The issue really 
is the jurisdiction and reach of those kingdoms in part. That's one of the questions anyway. So it's a bit of a foggy picture. It's like I think I say in my book, Gospel Culture, it's a bit like going into a, a foggy room and not quite knowing where all the furniture is and trying to figure out exactly what these different people mean. So to take Martin Luther, for example, he did posit a kind of strong duality between church and state and between law and gospel. And so you have sort of Lutheran versions of two kingdoms theology. And then you had the Anabaptists who posited a kind of two kingdom theology where they say, well, there's the church and there's the world and they run through history, but never should the twain really intersect. So you've got that kind of pilgrim mentality, the sort of victimization mentality, uh, the pacifistic sojourn through an alien world. That was the sort of Anabaptist two kingdoms. And then you have, I think, a novel iteration today of a two kingdoms theology, where actually they're not talking about a distinction between church and state in the way Luther would have spoken about it. And of course, the reformers themselves would have recognized that there is the church organic or the church triumphant. There's the totality of God's true church. And then there are visible institutions like the, for them, the institutional Catholic church. And so sometimes the way I'm not an expert on the Reformation theology, but lots of the academic discussions about two kingdoms are today. What did Luther mean by this? What did Calvin mean by that? And scholars don't agree about what they meant. But what is clear when you look at the life and ministry of John Calvin is that Calvin believed clearly that the word of God was applicable to every area of life. He didn't see the state or the school or the academy as somehow independent of the authority of Christ and his word. So when we look at the reformers, the idea that we can read back the contemporary idea of two kingdoms thought onto the reformers is not really valid. So what we have now, we've got the Anabaptist variant is still with us in modern evangelicalism. Definitely. A Lutheran variant is still with us in a strong separation of law and gospel. Yep. And this new sort of novel coming mainly out of Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, California, David Van Droon and Michael Horton and others, really uh, offers uh, something that I think is a novelty. And it's rooted in the same problem. I can come back to this in a moment, but the nature-grace distinction of Roman Catholic and scholastic theology But what they are arguing, to set it out as sort of simply as I can, is that there are the two kingdoms consist of the church or the redemptive kingdom and a common kingdom or essentially the secular world. Right. And the the issue, the controversy is, well, what parts of life are in these different kingdoms? So David Van Drunen tries to argue based on the covenant with Noah that a common kingdom has been established and that it is completely uh, distinct from the redemptive kingdom that is found in the life and person of Jesus Christ and that it's a common order. And in that common order or common kingdom, you find the family, education, the vocations, All of these kinds of institutions are part of that common kingdom. And they are to be governed by natural law, 
common grace principles. It's all very vague and rather arbitrary. And it's rooted in this notion, really, that nature and grace or creation and redemption, there's a strong bifurcation between the two of them. There's a strong separation. So in Van Drunen's theology, really, we just about escape this world with our physical bodies in the resurrection. And that's pretty much all that comes from this world into the new creation. Right. So you don't have a strong theology of creation and redemption is very much limited. This area of grace is very much limited to the church institute. So all the focus of reform is on really the reform of the church institute. And so the idea of the gospel really shaping culture, impacting education, political life, justice, even transforming my family. My family, according to Van Drunen, is not actually really part of the kingdom of God as the family. It's part of the common kingdom. And all of these things operate in terms of common principles that he argues were established through this covenant with Noah. That is basically his idea. Matthew Tuninga's is slightly different. He tries to make the two kingdom separation really one of ages. So we live, the present age is not an age in which the kingdom is really being realized. The kingdom is something that is realized only really in a future eschatological age. So you've got these two ages and a very strong separation between this age and the age to come, very little connection between the two. So these are all different ways of basically saying that the here and now, this creation right now, doesn't really need to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is somehow limited to a certain story, a particular, if you, you know, divide the reality up into a couple of different stories, the redemptive up here, the common down here, Redemption's only for the top story, or divide it up horizontally. It's not really for this age, it's for the future coming age. Right. And it seems that that is a radically different view of Christ's lordship and the, the, the story of redemption than we see the apostles living out in the book of Acts. I mean, it, we see them, I, I guess, in, encountering and coming up against their culture, their masters, right? Rome. So help us understand why that's such a deviation from scripture. Well, I think you, first of all, have to very quickly, you you go back to the creation. You have to go back to the beginning and recognize that what's the original story? What, what do we actually go back to? When we look at the Bible, when we look at scripture, what, what's happening? We begin with a good creation and human beings set as in the in the garden of God, as uh, kingly priests, as vice regents in the earth to serve God and his purposes. In a certain sense, the garden is like, a, and Adam and Eve there are like a, a priesthood in, in the creational temple of God, because the temple of the Old Testament is a recreation of Eden in many respects. We know then, of course, that our first parents fell and we in them into sin and rebellion against God. And so God calls out a people. Well, of course, he first of all restates the commission to Adam and Eve. He restates it to Noah to rule and subdue. He restates that commission after the flood. And then he calls out a people in Abraham who he is um, making a, a special people for himself to be truly obedient to that original commission. So in a certain sense, you have another Adam 
as it were, in Noah. And then in Abraham, you have this man called out that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed, that this nation is going to be called to fulfill the purposes of God in the earth. And of course, we know that the story of the Old Testament is that of the rebellion, the disobedience, the idolatry, and the judgment of the Hebrews, of the, of the people of Israel, until Christ, the truly obedient son, the second Adam, or the last Adam, as, as scripture uh, refers to him, comes, he's called out of Egypt, out of Egypt I will call my son, as the prophets say, and he's the one who's truly going to fulfill Torah, he's truly going to obey God, and he is going to, according to the very first promise in Genesis 3.15, redeem his people, undo the curse, and make all things new, the beginning of the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. So the whole story, if you like, the, the, the thrust of Scripture is ultimately about the kingdom of God, that's the rule and reign of God, centered in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Lord and King. So we've got this difficulty today of the truncation of the gospel, of our message, uh, that, you know, Jesus loves you and he's got a wonderful plan for your life and he wants to forgive you of your sins so you can go to heaven. Well, that's maybe 25% of it. Right. You can't really have the gospel without a declaration that Jesus Christ wants to forgive your sins and God does have a plan for our lives. But all of that is wrapped up in the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the nature of his kingdom, his rule, his reign. And that's why in the gospels that you've referred to there and in the book of Acts, we see the gospel of the kingdom being declared and proclaimed. That's what it's called. It's the gospel of the kingdom, of the rule and reign of Christ. And so we see Peter challenging the Sanhedrin when he's ordered not to preach the gospel. And that very word, by the way, evangel there, it's borrowed from the Greco-Roman world. And the evangel was the publication of the news that the emperor or the king was back in the city, back in his palace. And so this taking of that word of the good news, this declaration of kingship, and the word church as well, ecclesia, is really about a, a called out kingdom people in terms of the affairs of the kingdom of God. There was a recognition immediately in the book of Acts, take the beginning of Acts uh, chapter 7, for example, the accusation is made against the disciples there that they are proclaiming another king, That's Jesus. Right. And for that, they are being hauled over the coals and that they are in violation of the decrees of Caesar because at the time, Augustus Caesar had declared himself to be the son of God and the savior of the world, basically. And the preaching of the gospel of the kingship of Jesus and Christ as savior and that salvation was by grace through the person of Jesus Christ and not by political law and through the emperor, salvation via politics through the emperor. This was radical. So there was no sort of notion that, well, you know, we're, this is just about, we're only, we're appealing to people's hearts. We're telling them about this spiritual kingdom. No, this was seen as a, a radical political offense that they are declaring another king, Jesus. So in Acts 4.12, when Peter says there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. That is a direct contradiction to the declaration of Augustus Caesar, for there is no other name under heaven given to men than by which you must be saved than the name Caesar Augustus. Hmm. That publication had been made. So immediately, 
You've got the preaching of the gospel, challenging people's personal lives, their hearts, the challenge of repentance and regeneration, but a clear recognition of the social, political, cultural implications of the recognition of Jesus Christus, of Jesus Christ as Lord, as Kurios, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his title. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that wasn't lost on the early hearers of the gospel. They understood what this meant. So Paul, in Acts 17 there, is found at the, at the Athenian court, probably invited to address the council there. They were, they were in political authority there as well. That was a remarkably successful speech that he gave there because of some of the most prominent members of the council believed. Some scoffed. Some said, we'd like to hear you again about this. But there you see him confronting political and um, academic authority. You see him again with a, a Festus and a Gripper and Felix, and then appealing his case all the way to Rome, to Caesar himself, because he was a Roman citizen. And if you look at all of those trials that Paul went through, all of those interviews, they're fascinating because Paul wanted to get in front of Caesar. Right. And if you look at the end of his letter to the Philippians, he's writing from Rome, or is he writing from Philippi? I can't remember now. I think he's writing from Rome, that's right, to the, 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 the Christians in Philippi. And he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So there you have a little insight into the fact that Paul is able to send greetings from the church in Rome to the church in Philippi, already knowing that the gospel has penetrated the house of Caesar. We don't know whether they were high officials or lowly servants, but we do know that within a relatively short period of time historically, the gospel is spreading rapidly, education is being transformed, young people are being transformed, and of course eventually Rome itself, the emperors begin to confess Christ. So obviously our current attitude towards Christianity and culture and political life is pretty different to what we see even in the book of Acts. Right. And I think Christians forget that Rome didn't care who you worshipped. Rome was as pluralistic as we are now. They didn't care unless what you had to say was speaking against the almighty Caesar, right? Against the almighty state. So you can worship whoever you want as long as you recognize that they're a lesser authority than, than Rome and Caesar. And there's a reason Christians were being put to death. And it wasn't just because they were worshiping Yahweh. It's because they believed that they worshiped Yahweh over and above the state and Caesar. Exactly. They were confronting this statist behemoth, if you will, it was common throughout antiquity. It wasn't unique to Rome. You see it right there. I mean, you know, Daniel, of course, would be the classic example. Daniel in Babylon, there you have, and his friends, you have a covenantally faithful people. You have people inside there, the covenant of grace, who are called to be in positions of political authority, even in a time of exile, one might say of persecution of God's people. God raises them up to positions of political authority. And one of the accounts you see there in the book of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel having interpreted his vision and then erecting this great giant statue, which really represented state worship and Daniel's friends refusing to bow down. Again, in Babylon, you had a syncretistic culture. People were allowed to worship their local gods, but you had to first of all recognize the absolute sovereignty and authority of the state. 
And this was the same in Rome, and it came to explicit expression there in the Caesar cult, where the emperor was to be recognized as lord and worshipped as such. And so Rome's problem with the church, as you pointed out, was not that they wanted to worship their own god, small g. You could go to the state, say Caesar is lord, put your incense on the altar, get your license to worship, and have a plaque put up on the side of your building that you were a state-licensed institution because you'd recognize the primary authority and sovereignty and lordship of Caesar. And that was why Christians were persecuted, not because they weren't good citizens, not because they weren't good to their neighbors, quite the contrary, not because other gods couldn't be worshipped in Rome, that massive syncretistic culture. It was because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so, in a sense, martyrdom, which is often looked at today nostalgically as a kind of sort of romantic ideal in the early church, that martyrdom was an expression of cultural, not just what we might say narrowly religious the Christians didn't say, this is just my personal faith. When they were baptized in the early church, your baptismal confession was simply, Jesus Christ is Lord. And for that confession, you could lose your life. So it was not just a personal, private affair. It was a public recognition of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over every power and authority. And that uh, nobody could be put before, Caesar included, the worship of the living God in the person of Christ. And that was the great offense of the Christian. That is why they were persecuted in the early centuries. So let's kind of get practical with um, the ramifications of this. For So if we as Christians are not going to buy into... Um, this radical two-kingdom theology, and we understand that Jesus is Lord, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So if we're buying into that, and we, we kind of fast forward now, so we've talked about Rome and Babylon, I don't think it takes a PhD to kind of make the comparison that that's where we are right now. The state has no problems with Christians who worship on Sunday mornings and sing hymns to their gods as long as our beliefs don't penetrate into the public education system or take women's <laughs> rights away in their right to dismember their babies in their womb and those sorts of things. So how do we as Christians, you kind of everyday Christians, how do we get back to the sort of radical understanding that the early apostles clearly had, how do we confront the culture now? How do we kind of turn this ship around when it seems like we've taken the mark and we're worshiping in our private place? It, sound, it seems like that's mm -hmm. where the North American church is. How do we start to turn the rudder? It's interesting that you put it that way because um, a few years ago I was speaking at a, at a men's conference here in Canada and I ended up sat on a table with a group of Chinese Christians who had maybe been in Canada 10 years, perhaps less. And I'm always interested in talking to people like that, Christians from other parts of the world who've come to live in the West to get their impressions. And they said to me, when I asked them about the Canadian church, they said that their impression is that the Canadian church is much like the state church in China, Out. which I thought was very interesting because the state church in China, as opposed to the underground church, is the one that has accepted the state's definitions, rule, license, and so forth, and is monitored and so on, controlled, if you will, uh, by the state. And I thought that was um, telling that they made that particular observation. 
I think as this relates, first of all, just to Two Kingdoms theology, you know, the likes of Michael Horton and um, David Van Drunen, who in many respects are orthodox, even reformed in their thinking in terms of soteriology, doctrines of salvation and so forth, would probably take objection to some degree of uh, being cast in this sort of a light as being part of the problem, if you will. So without um, uh, negating their contribution to discussions about Christian doctrine and so on, the difficulty, the problem, is that as the culture has applied more and more pressure to the church, the tendency for us has been to come up with theologies of retreat and defeat that enable us to justify, first of all, our ignoring and then our caving in to all of the cultural pressure around us. So first of all, we had the kind of, in the mid to late 20th century, we had the the escape the world theologies in things like dispensationalism, for example, where the goal of life is basically to get out of the world as quickly as possible and be raptured, and all you have to do is keep your eye on what's happening in the Middle East and various predictions about the end of the world and so forth. So let's get out of here as quickly as possible into this other world. So no concept of the redemptive work of Christ transforming creation and culture now. Well, this is a kind of more sophisticated escapist theology, and it comes in a reformed guise. It takes that with, I believe, Greek philosophical origins that impacted the Roman Catholic Church, this nature-grace dualism. Yep. And really what it's saying practically on the ground is, okay, we need to be faithful and solid in the church, in the church institute, and we need to get the liturgy right, and we need to make sure we're preaching salvation by grace and by faith alone and so forth, and we can applaud all of that. That's fine. But what it then says ultimately is that the jurisdiction really of Jesus Christ is in the end limited to the church in some vague sort of broadly sort of sovereignty, overall providence, God's in charge, but there's no direct application of the word of God, which is for the church, to the culture, the world around us. That's where the problem lies. And your illustration about, for example, education, I just saw this week a big, there's a controversy in Alberta, you may have been following this, in Alberta, Canada, with the home education and so forth. And a political official there says, you know, I'm all for religious freedom, and for people to worship privately, etc., but that shouldn't interfere with their people's education. <laughs> and that's the level of their understanding is that we have a religious state orthodoxy. That's what needs to be taught in education. And you can have your pious private beliefs in your head, yeah. and possibly in a very small zone of privacy in your house. But outside of that, it cannot be brought into the public space without censure. And so what you've described there is the essence of the problem. Now, the two kingdoms, guys, they don't have an ability to respond to this. Right. If education and the family and political life and arts and science and everything else, if there's no such thing as a Christian family, Christian arts, Christian education that's all subordinated to the lordship of Christ and his word, then they're just carrying on in terms of the, the common kingdom. And this sort of commentary had plausibility in leafy suburbs in the United States in in some places because of the effect of centuries of Christian evangelization in the West. You could assume that broadly speaking, your neighbor would agree with you that marriage is between a man and a woman, 
that uh, you should have integrity in business, that life is sacred and so on. Well, now, if you look down your average street in Toronto, where I live, life isn't sacred. The Supreme Court has just struck down all laws against assisted suicide and euthanasia. You can be arrested and thrown into prison for uh, protesting outside an abortion clinic. There's no agreement about what marriage is and even human sexuality, male and female, as you know, and as your listeners will know, this is all completely up for grabs. So where's the common kingdom in all of that? Where's this common recognition of a common set of values? So we've taken for granted the fact that our forebears sacrificed by standing on God's word, by being robustly Christian in their home, in their families, but also in their vocations, in the culture. People paid dearly during the Reformation period for us to have the scriptures in our hand. People paid dearly for us to be free from the absolute power of tyrannical rulers so that we could have a constitution which under the supremacy of God, or in Britain, of course, and really here in, in the Commonwealth, where the Queen is still our monarch, she took an oath to uphold the law and gospel of Jesus Christ and so forth. And the political liberties that have come from that, where all kings and rulers are subject to divine law. These things have been taken for granted for so long. We've lived off the energy of their sacrifices and their preaching of the gospel and their application of God's word for so long, especially the likes of the Puritans and our evangelical forebears, that now as that energy has run out and the culture has changed all around us, People are floundering and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. We see much of the church caving in on lots of these issues. And all the while, the two kingdoms advocates uh, sort of say, well, you know, don't bring politics into the church pulpit. That's a common kingdom issue. Don't drag education into these areas. And actually what they've done is, if I can put it this way to you guys, uh, um, they've ecclesiasticized the word of God. That is, they've imprisoned the Mm. Bible in the church institute. And they've said the word of God is only for the church. What happens then, of course, is that since we say that the word of God is really just about the church institute and it doesn't apply to education, to culture, to politics, to business and all these other areas... People are allowed in their thinking to go their own way, to, go, to be humanistic, even pagan in many of their, uh, and secular in this false sacred secular divide, of course, is all part of that. In their thinking, they become essentially hybrids, part humanist, part Christian. So when a pastor or a Christian leader tries to apply God's word and the truth of Christ's lordship to education or to politics or to some area, great offense is caused and you are somehow violating church state separation or sacred secular divide and you find yourself being the one who's considered a pariah or or divisive and, and, and these kinds of things and you may have experienced some of that so an ecclesiasticized word actually politicizes the church so we have a very radically politicized church today where people believe all kinds of bizarre things that are not surrendered to god's word So if we're going to change that, Nathaniel, as you've asked, the starting point has to be in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, a return to the whole word of God for the whole of life, beginning with the church, because judgment begins at the house of God. And it's most people in the churches do not understand this. Many of the leaders, indeed, I would say most of the leaders don't understand and apply this. And that is why the church is left confused. And the younger generation, like, you guys look like you're millennials or at least under 30 probably or somewhere there 
Thank you. Right for around that. there, yeah. <laughs> Are you or not? Uh, yeah, we're just over 30. So over we'll, 30. we'll take just, just under 30. There, yeah. That sounds great. Is that generation and younger have turned to social justice type language and discourse, which is basically sort of Marxism baptized as Christianity. And we don't use the term emergent church much anymore because it's gone mainstream. But that sort of movement where younger people have said, well, hang on a minute, surely the gospel is not just about me and my soul and my personal life. Surely it has broader application than that. Surely it must change the world in which we live. And these liberals really have been the only ones for quite a while offering concrete answers about how to respond to these issues in culture, in in the rest of life, in this other kingdom, (laughs) as it were. So we have got to bring robustly scriptural answers back into the center of the life of the church. Amen. Amen. So, Joe, if, I just want to make sure I'm hearing you correct. So what I'm hearing is that you're saying that what's really come under attack over the last hundred years or so is is not so much Christ's divinity and his lordship, but really his kingship of the whole entire world. So mm-hmm. we've, we've gotten really good as a, as a church of keeping Christ in a box in terms of what his his sphere of influence, what he's sovereign over is the church itself, but not over mm-hmm. culture in general. So yeah. a lot of our listeners aren't pastors, are just regular lay people. How would they then take Christ's kingship into their workplaces? Like what would be some practical advice you would give your congregation, for instance, about how to live this out on a day-to-day basis? You're absolutely right. The challenge has not so much been, certainly within evangelical circles, challenging the divinity of Jesus or in theory, the authority of Scripture. But what we have questioned or doubted or failed to realize or apply is the nature of Christ's divinity, his lordship and his kingship as son of man and son of God. And corresponding to that, the material authority of the Bible. So we talk about the Bible's formal authority, and Christians are still quite good at talking about that. Well, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and it's infallible or inerrant and so on. But we don't really believe in its material authority. That is that it's actually applicable. It's not so much that the problem is in the area of abstract doctrines. Most evangelicals that you come across in the Canadian church today would still say Jesus is the son of God. The Bible is the word of God. They may be getting fuzzy around the edges on some of those things, but that general affirmation would still be there. But these are abstract. They're not materially applied. And so I think the way I usually start with something like this is to say that when we look at the big issues of the culture, we look at the wider, the bigger challenges, it's hard for us to know where to begin. People feel overwhelmed. And so the place to start, I think, for all of us practically is, first of all, with our own lives as individuals and in our own families. Are we as individuals and as a family taking the lordship of Jesus Christ seriously? Are we taking God's word and applying it as the manifesto for our life? Do we take God's law word seriously? Am I living as a husband, as a father, as God is calling me to? Am I catechizing, that is, am I teaching and training my children in the faith? Is there family worship where we are taking seriously God's word together on a consistent basis? Do I tithe of my income to the Lord for kingdom purposes? So financially, is my wallet, is my bank account really surrendered to God, or do I just give him the bits that are left over? 
The tithe is God's tax, and without a tax, you can't advance the realm because there's no resources to advance the realm. So mm. are we giving? And then I would look at things like, okay, as individually and as a family, what about my children's education? So we in Toronto have started Westminster Classical Christian Academy, and we're helping other schools get off the ground because we're saying, well, in this whole area of education, then in an extension of the teaching of the family is that we need to be thinking about Christian schools not uh, schools that simply add chapel once a week or a couple of times a week to a humanistic curriculum, but actually who take seriously uh, Christ-centered curriculum, which recognizes the authority of, uh, of God's word. And then I would say in our vocations, in the workplace, in business, whatever it is that we're doing, it's not simply a case of, I better say something about Jesus to my colleagues. I mean, that's certainly part of it. We have to be engaged in evangelism sharing the good news of the gospel. But uh, we should be taking seriously, well, what does it mean for me as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, whatever it may be, to think and live in terms of scriptural principles? Now, I could talk uh, and wax lyrical about, uh, you know, how in the academy and how in theory making and all of that, in the development of even scientific theory and literary theory and all these kinds of things, as we think about the implications of the Lordship of Christ and what a scripturally based worldview and philosophy really means, you can see how, I think, Nathaniel, you mentioned it earlier, the myth of neutrality has permeated the church and our lives to such a degree that we think, well, you know, is there really, I think one of the jokes that the two kingdoms people use is, you know, there's no Christian way to do stir fry or, you know, there's no Christian way to change a diaper as though those are some sort of defeater arguments that nullify the lordship of Christ over distinctly Christian view of anything. But actually, you know, take stir fry. Well, actually, it's the influence of, if you think about food and diets, well, actually, the Bible has a lot to say about food and diet and food preparation. In the West, we have followed biblical slaughter laws for generations, generations. So actually, when you look at it, food is one of those very interesting areas where we have taking God's word seriously. And um, the reason that we're not doing stir-fry man flesh in Canada today, and we're doing stir-fry chicken, is actually the influence of the gospel, because the Caribs, from which we get the cannibalism, that was very much a part of what was happening in the Americas. So actually, when you see the impact of the gospel and of God's word, it touches every area of people's lives. So in our work and business, we should be thinking, what does it mean to act, to live, to function with biblical integrity. How can I think through my area of work, not just in terms of can I share Jesus with a colleague, but what does it mean to pursue this area of work as a Christian? How can I bring biblical principles to bear in this area? And actually when we do that, we will find that God blesses it and, and we'll succeed because when you do follow biblical principles in these areas, we walk into and just find ourselves in the midst of the blessing of God and others will be drawn to us through it. I could give lots of illustrations, but that's the basic idea of it, right. that we're asking ourselves, God's word is not just a crystal ball for me to look at and flip to any old page for a random devotional. It is God's charter for the totality right. of our lives, whether we're in politics or collecting the trash. And it, it seems as though you're kind of saying that the, uh, 
the mere understanding of kind of the teleology of Christ's lordship coming into every sphere, just connecting your thinking to the fact that this is part of me expanding the lordship of Christ. This is part of me expanding the realm of God, the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Just connecting that in our thinking goes a long way in kind of every person in the congregation's way of, of getting Absolutely. into the war. It's about rediscovering who Jesus Christ really is. And here's perhaps a useful distinction for you. And that's the distinction between structure and direction. When we think about who Christ really is, he, he's the son of God. So this is where the apostle John begins, of course, in chapter one of, the, of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and he introduces us to the divinity of the person, the human person that he's also introducing us to. So we know that Christ is the creator as well as the redeemer. Now, we tend to think in terms of cross-centered Christianity as Christians, and we know what the heart behind that is, that we believe Jesus died for our sins, but we don't see that the resurrection and the ascension and the session of Jesus Christ in the seat of authority is as important for our salvation as his death at the cross. Because Christ is first the creator before he is the redeemer. And his redemptive work is about restoring the creation that was alienated from him. You see, it wasn't just we as people who were alienated from God by our sin. In our sins, we now seek to alienate God's creation from him Hmm. wow so the structures and norms that god has established for creation everything from laws we call them laws like gravity through to the norm for marriage and family for example just to cite two norms that god has established those are the structures that god has established at creation and the norms especially so you've got laws and norms but the norms especially are the ones that in our sin and rebellion we try and overturn. And of course, you've got a very vivid expression of this today in the attempt to redefine completely the idea of human sexual identity. So there you've got a war on God's norms. So that is an attempt to, in our alienation from God, to alienate creation itself from God. So we've got these two, in a sense, parallel tracks in creation. We have the creational laws and norms And those laws and norms impinge on everybody's life every day inescapably. We're all creatures of God, living in God's creation, beings made in the image of God. We are unable to escape the fact that we live each day, koram deu, that is before the face of God. That's true of every single living human being. So everything about us is oriented, whether we like it or not, toward our creator, either in obedience or disobedience. So creational structures and norms, despite our sin, they hold. So when Jesus teaches on marriage, he says it was not originally this way, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and a man uh, should be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, etc. So Christ appeals to the norm of creation. That's the structure. The problem in the world is direction. So man seeks to, by his rebellion and his idolatry, redirect everything that he's doing if he's outside of christ he tries to turn it in an apostate and rebellious direction so paul really reduces it to this in romans 1 he says there's worship of the creator and there's worship of the creation and that's really the only two ultimate worldviews that there actually are 
the creation norms hold, but man in his direction in life, in all these areas, is either going to be turned toward apostasy or towards obedience. And so as you think about, and as we think about as a church, what it means to help people with this, it's about recognizing who Jesus Christ is as creator first, and now that he's come as redeemer to restore that creation to himself, not just we who are alienated from him to restore us to himself, but to cleanse us so that we cease to try and alienate creation from God. The way I put it in my book, Gospel Culture, is that culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, and Christ comes to restore us to true worship. Right. Therefore, Christ restores us to true culture, which is the kingdom of God. So it's rightly identifying uh, and being reminded as God's people who Jesus Christ really is as creator and redeemer, and that he's simply come to reclaim his property rights and to restore the right direction, that is to reconcile, reconcile all things to God. And we are ministers of that message of reconciliation, the Bible says. And if your microphone wasn't attached to your computer, I'd say you could drop the mic there. That was, (laughs) boom. Amen. (laughs) Wonderful. We just uh, want to thank you for coming on the show today. I know that was fantastic. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of that. I know me and Nate definitely appreciate it. Why don't you give our listeners just a couple places where they can hear more from you on different topics or even uh, some ways they can follow your ministry a little bit? Well, thank you very much. Yes. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me. I'd be happy to come on again. So as far as the listeners are concerned, yeah, we'd love to make contact with you. You can go onto our website, www.ezrainstitute.ca, and there you can listen to lectures, access articles, blogs, videos, and sermons, as well as sign up for our free journal, Jubilee, which we send out three times a year. That is free to all subscribers. So if you'd like to think more and reflect more about the implications of the gospel for culture, Jubilee is a great resource for that. We'd love to be able to send that to you for free. And uh, yes, keep an eye on the website in the coming months because um, the EICC is establishing its own study center on the Niagara Peninsula where we'll soon be running academies and programs and courses out of there as well. So announcements about that are going to be coming soon. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Dr. Boot, and keep doing what you're doing. We're listening been my privilege. Thanks so much, gents. Thank you. God bless.